Our message is titled, The Flood, the Ark, and Prophecy. And may I remind you, all of you who are here in the building, as well as those who are watching and listening by other means, that every message is available by tape. And those of you who are here, it's immediately available after the service is over. To understand the flood, the ark, and prophecy, we need to first of all take a look at the conditions before the flood. What was the world like? In order to do that, we need to look into one of the most important chapters in the New Testament, and that is Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is the most important chapter in the New Testament to understand history past and history future. In the 38th verse of Matthew 24, this summary statement is made by Jesus Christ. For as in the days that were before the flood, now that is the indicator that following is the answer to what the conditions were like. As in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now what this is saying to us is about a particular form of man's licentiousness. In other words, man was sensually gratifying himself before the flood. He was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. He was totally wrapped up in the senses, the things that gratified his flesh. Now what led or what uh, came about as a result of this is discovered very quickly in the book of Genesis. In chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Lamech took unto him two wives. Sensual gratification, one was not enough. He took unto himself two wives. That was not God's plan. In chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. No limit all which they chose. Captivated by the charms of beauty, they cast aside the bonds of self-restraint. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Now, some people ask, who were these sons of God? There are two explanations. One is that these were fallen angels. A third of the angelic host fell with Satan, and these were the sons of God. The other view is the one that I hold to, and that is that these sons of God were from the godly line of Seth. The godly line of Seth saw the daughters of men and married these ungodly women. We talked about Seth last week in our message in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. Perhaps these were beautiful and accomplished people, but they were unbelieving and ungodly. Scripture forbids such an amalgamation. 
2 Corinthians 6.14 says it well. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath light with darkness? God always wanted to preserve a godly seed. And the godly line of Seth moved over to the ungodly segment of society and began to intermarry. They married to please their fancies. They left out the important things of spiritual life, of intellectual compatibility and general suitability. What charmed their senses was their only concern, and how many ever women it took to charm their senses, that was what they took unto themselves. Lamech had two wives, the sons of Seth, yielding to self-indulgence, limited their wives only by the demands of their passion. Those were the conditions prior to the flood. Now, when you add to this what Genesis tells us, there was a spirit of violence in the land, you have one sordid problem. Those who break the law of God usually end up breaking the laws of man. We have that example all around us today. It is rather amusing to me when people talk about the separation of church and state, when they talk about politics entering the church. A reporter shared his concern about that with me recently. And I said to him that it is impossible for you or anybody else to separate what you believe from the way you live. You live what you believe. The secular and the sacred cannot be separated. It's impossible to dissect them. I said to him, you write according to what you believe. You write from the concept of what you hear from where you're coming from, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and in every way. You can't help that. That's the way it is. And he had nothing to say. He had no answer to that. You cannot separate the sacred and the secular. They are as intertwined as anything could be intertwined in this world. And so at this particular time in history, they broke the law of God and then began to break the laws of men. Remember, man was created in the image of God. Through man's persistence in his downward path, there is now, in this passage of Genesis, complete extinction of the higher nature. The high became swallowed up in the low. Evil imaginations evil in the thoughts, evil in the heart, nothing but evil everywhere. It was not the case of one or two people, but it was the case of all with one solitary exception. Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Think of it. From man's exalted position being created in the very image of God, now there is only one man on the face of the earth who has any semblance of God left in his life. All the rest are degenerates. 
because they chose a path that leads to destruction due to the complete insensibility to divine influences God withdrew his spirit the third verse of this sixth chapter says my spirit will not always strive with man Hebrews or rather Proverbs tells us that he who stiffeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy you cannot play this game with God forever his spirit will not always strive with man this example is here in Genesis perhaps as profoundly as in any other form of history we could find there was no use for further striving to restrain or improve man they were like those Gentiles Paul spoke of in Ephesians 4 19 who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness does that remind you of anything that you have seen in your lifetime who being past feeling you see they have no sensitivity to God anymore they gave themselves over unto lasciviousness anything that they could imagine to work all uncleanness with greediness God repented that he had made man at this particular moment in history he was filled with heartfelt grief and pity he sighed he was sorry which is what the word repent means in this instance some of the saddest words God ever spoke are in chapter 6 of Genesis particularly these words in verse 7 I will destroy man God did not want to do that that's not why God put man here but God had to say my spirit will not always strive there comes a time of cutting off when men choose their own way go their own way satisfy their own lusts and their own imaginations God says I will have to destroy man my friends in case you have not noticed it we are at that point in history again where God is having to say my spirit will not always strive with man the condition of total giving of themselves to their senses and to violence conditions before the flood that led up to the catastrophe that we read of in this sixth chapter now let's take a look at the three things that are implied in the title of my message today first of all the flood there are some who say oh there wasn't a flood that's just somebody's imagination it's just a good story well Jesus said in Matthew 24 there was one he said in Luke 17 verse 26 there was a flood 
Isaiah said in chapter 54, verse 9, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. Where did he get the idea of Noah and the idea of water? For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5 and 2 Peter 3.6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Where did Peter get that idea? I come from the Pacific Northwest, and my cousin pastored up near the Columbia River out of Longview, Washington, for a number of years, and I remember being there with him on one occasion and he was pointing out near the Columbia River, way up high in the banks of the hills that surround that area, fossil-like images in the banks. And he said that they have dug out of the banks, way high above the, the river that now is known as the Columbia, fossils and all kinds of things that must be predated way back to the time of a flood, that at some time the waters were so high that they were way up over those banks and over those hills and left those fossils in the side of the hills and the banks. History tells us there was a flood. Every ancient civilization had a flood tradition. Now what was the purpose of the flood? Well, the corruption of man would be the first purpose, of course. Violence was all over the face of the earth. And when this kind of condition prevails, there must always be judgment and death before there can be a new beginning. There had to be the putting away of the old before there could come in the new. And because of this violence and because of this corruption of man, the flood had to be. The cause of the flood is very simple. It is seen in one verse, chapter 7 and verse 11. The fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, suggests that the falling of rain was a new thing on the earth. The only thing they had known up to then was a mist that came up from the ground but they had never known rain. But here in chapter 7 it says that the fountains of the great deep were opened up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now what faith it took for Noah to build that ark when he had never seen rain. He had never known rain. The only thing he had known was a mist from the earth. Never rain. And yet he stood before the population and he said, there's going to be a flood. The whole earth will be covered with water. Ho, 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 said they. So Hebrews has to remind us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things you have not yet seen. He had not yet seen rain, but now in chapter 7, the fountains of the deep water gushed from the earth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain 
pelted the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. Then we look at the ark. Now, friends, it was not a boat. Really, it was a floating box. That box was made of cypress wood and pitched with B-I-T-U-M-I-N, bitumen. Now, this floating box had inside of it three million cubic feet of space. We have people who say, how could Noah get two kinds of all the animals into the ark? He didn't. He didn't at all. He got seven of the clean and two of the unclean. Ha, ha, ha. God told him, you take seven of each of the clean species and two of the unclean. Where did they ever get the idea it was just two of each? It was many more than that. Three million cubic feet of space inside of that floating box. Now, if you want to translate that into tons, that floating box could carry 25 to 30,000 tons of whatever. Elephants, giraffes, ants, anything. It was 562 and a half feet long, 93 and two-thirds feet wide, 56 and a quarter feet high. That translates into three stories and 13 yards short of two football fields. If that will help you picture this floating box. It was big enough for all of the animals, seven clean, two unclean, and the food and Noah's family. Big enough to hold all of that. Now, for all of you senior citizens, I have good news. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, which means he was 480 when he began to build it. Bob Erickson, we've got a lot of potential help out there. 480, and you've been thinking of retirement. Shame on you. Terrible. The ark is a picture of salvation. I want you to get this. This is exciting. I said to you early in this series that there is a type in the Old Testament of everything you find in the New, and here's one of those beautiful examples. The ark was planned by God, just as salvation was planned by God. God saw the condition of men, and he had a plan. God saw the condition of men. He sent Jesus. He had a plan from the foundation of the world. It was designed for our redemption that Jesus should come. The ark only had one door in it. There are not many ways to God. That's nonsense. Stupid. There are not many ways to God. There is only one way, and there was only one door in that ark. There was only one way you could get in. You could not sneak in from the back. 
there was only one door. The children sing one door and only one, and it's true. There's only one way, and Jesus said, I am that way. Buddha isn't the way. No one is the way other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man who came as God's sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. One door, and everybody must enter through that door. This ark was made of wood, which speaks of the humanity of Christ. He was nailed to wood. A cross became his throne. The word for pitch, as you see it in the 14th verse of this sixth chapter, is the same word as atonement. Interesting. The New Testament word is atonement. The pitch, the bit human that kept that ark together, that kept it from breaking up in the flood, is the same word we have for atonement. The atonement is what keeps you from breaking up, from falling apart. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood has never lost its power. No, never. It will hold through eternity. In our hymn book is still the hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can hold this ark together? Nothing but bit human. Nothing but this pitch. It's the only thing that will keep it from crumbling in the midst of the pressure. Hallelujah. Oh, what a type. God invited Noah and his family into the ark. And God invites every human being into the ark of safety. God opens the door and says, come on in. I want to dwell with you forever. I want you to be happy. I want you to be joyful forever. Come on in to the ark. Just as God invited Noah and his family in. And I want you to notice the 16th verse of the 7th chapter. When they got in, God shut the door. And God is going to shut the door. No man's going to shut the door. No government is going to shut the door. God is the only one that can shut the door. He opened it and he's going to close it. And one of these days it's going to slam shut, my friend. That's why with radio and television and the printed page and the preaching of the word, we want to let you know the door is open because we also know that one of these days God is going to close that door with fervor and it will never be opened up again. God shut it. Matthew 25 has that same instance of finality when five wise virgins with oil in their lamps went into the marriage feast and the door was shut. And the five foolish came along later and said, let us in, let us in. But the door was shut and it would not be opened. This is the day of grace. The door of the ark is opened now. God will someday 
close that door. His spirit will not always strive with man. Then I see that the ark saved them from judgment. The floods did come. All were destroyed. But they were in the ark, riding on top. Isn't that beautiful? If you enter through the door, you're saved from judgment. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation. And I'm going to buy that. How about you? 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. If you want some interesting reading, read that sometime. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Peter connects the ark with the resurrection of Christ. The waters buried the old world, but raised Noah to a new life. Beautiful type of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The waters buried the old world, but there was Noah riding high and dry. The resurrection is going to take us up and out, and we will be forever with our Lord. Beautiful type of the resurrection of Christ. Now let's take a look before we move to prophecy of the flood schedule. Now you'll probably not be able to get this writing it down, but it's on tape so you can pick it up after church. On the tenth day of the second month they enter the ark, chapter 7 verses 1 through 9 tells us. One week later, the seventeenth day of the second month, the floods come. That's in verses 10 and 11. The fountains of the deep are open, the rains descend, the floods come. On the 26th day of the third month, the 12th verse of chapter 7 indicates the rains ended 40 days later. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rests on Mount Ararat, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, 17th of the seventh month. On the first day of the tenth month, the mountain tops are seen. On the eleventh day of the eleventh month, Noah sends out a raven and a dove. The 18th day of the 11th month, one week later, the dove brings a branch back to the ark. The 25th day, another week after, of the 11th month, the dove does not return. He does not come back. Two weeks after being let out, he does not return. On the first day of the first month, 1657 B.C., Noah opens the door of the ark and they go out. First day, first month. 1657, on the 27th day of the second month, everything is out of the ark. Now, the ark rested on Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. Get that. The first month in the Hebrew calendar is not January. So if you were relating the statistics I were giving you to our months, you were off. The first month in the Hebrew calendar is October. So, the seventh month going from October would be April. The 17th day would be April the 17th, which just happens to be, according to Exodus 12, verses 1 through 3, three days after the Passover feast which is the day our Lord arose from the dead. 
Oh, I tell you, this Bible is so magnificent. So filled with truth on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rests. Where do we rest today? We rest in this eternal fact. Our Lord Jesus Christ lives. He is not inside a tomb. He is not wood or stone. Jesus Christ lives and we rest our case on the historical fact that three days after the Passover, Jesus Christ came out victorious, a living Redeemer conquering everything there was to conquer. And it's clear back in the book of Genesis. What a marvelous God we serve. Well, that has to do with the ark. I think the one I like to talk about the most is the third prophecy. Christ taught that the days before the rapture and the tribulation would be days like the days of Noah. That's why we've got to tie this in. I referred you to Luke 17, 26 earlier and Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Jesus said, I quote him, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Why did Jesus say that? As it was in the days of Noah. We've got to go back. How was it in the days of Noah? Verse 1, chapter 6, we read it together. People began to multiply on the face of the earth. Oh, I hope you're awake. Anybody sleeping? Nudge anybody that's asleep. They've got to hear this. Anybody sleeping? Wake up! People began to multiply on the face of the earth. That's what it was in the day of Noah. What have we heard today? Population is exploding. Key number one. People began to multiply on the face of the earth. So when you travel overseas, there are these big billboards. Go to class. I've seen them. Learn birth control. Huge billboards. I saw them in Hong Kong. I've seen them in other countries of the world. Learn birth control. Population explosion. All right, let's go to verse 5. The wickedness of man was great. What? The wickedness of man was great. Key number two, as it was in the days of Noah. Do you know that in San Francisco, California, there are leather shops which sell instruments of torture during sadistic sex? This week I received information that the San Francisco coroner has said that 10% of all the dead persons coming to the coroner are dead because of sadistic sex practices in San Francisco. 10% of all the dead the coroner is dealing with are dead because of sadistic sex practices. Do I need to paint any more pictures about the wickedness of man being great on the face of the earth? Beyond anything that my mind can connive 
that I read happening in this world. Verses 11 and 13, the earth is filled with violence. Crime rose 12% nationally in 1980, much more in some places than others. 12%. Are any of you afraid to go at certain times of the day to certain parts of the city? Violence. The earth was filled with it. We open the paper. There is a morbid picture of a Christian missionary alliance. Missionary working with Wycliffe translators. Gunned down in cold blood. We open another page. It's not uncommon at all to read and to see pictures of violence, horrible violence, in graphic detail. The earth is filled with violence. There's another sign here that I wouldn't want you to miss. It's in verse 8. True believers are a minority. Noah, one, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a sign. I said, true believers. I didn't say all oh, churchgoers were in a minority. I said, true believers. I mean the people who really 100% love God. They are determined to serve the Lord. They want to give their tithe. They want to be out on Sunday night. They want to read the Bible. They want to pray. They want to attend Bible study. They love God, and they don't have to be talked into it. True believers. Those who are alive and waiting for the coming of the Lord. True believers, they're in a minority. Don't believe all the statistics you read. Don't believe that we're winning this world. There are more in church, yes. There are more statistics, yes. But I am talking about true believers. People who will die if need be, for their testimony. Are you one of them? Another sign was that those were days of witness. Enoch preached judgment to the people. Enoch named his son Methuselah, which means when he dies it shall be sent. The judgment would come after Methuselah is dead. That's what the naming of Methuselah was all about. When he dies it shall be sent. Now, Methuselah lived to be 969 years. He was born in the year 687. He died in the year 1656. The very year the flood came. Oh, the magnificence of that Bible. For 969 years, God gave the wicked world grace. All the while, Methuselah lived. God gave them grace, and then for the last 120 years of that period, Noah was preaching and preparing the ark. There is more preaching today than in the history of the world. There is more declaring of truth today than in the history of the world. God has given us almost 2,000 years of grace, but in these last 200 years, there has been more preaching than at any time in the history of the world, and it's accelerating at such a rate the world can't keep up with it. 
What does it say? It says that the coming of the Lord is nigh. Noah and Enoch. Enoch named his son Methuselah. When he dies, the judgment will come. The very year he died, the flood came. And for 120 years, Noah was putting that bit human in the ark, building that ark, preaching to the people. Then they laughed at him for 120 years. Let them laugh. Let them print their stories. Let them make their jokes. I will stand on this eternal book. Jude picked it up hundreds of years later in verses 14 and 15 of his little epistle and said, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Where did Jude get that idea? Talked about Enoch. Well, now, if you need any more evidence, let me wrap it up with this. Noah and Enoch represent Israel and the church. Noah went through the judgment and was kept safe, just as the 144,000 in the Jewish remnant will go through the tribulation to establish the kingdom on earth. Noah went through the judgment but was kept safe by God. Enoch was raptured before the judgment came. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. I said, everything that happens in the new is in type in the old. Noah goes through the judgment but is preserved. Enoch comes up to the judgment and goes, you can go through the tribulation if you wish. I just am not planning on it. I am going to follow Enoch's example who was translated that he should not see death because he pleased God. Now, when is it going to happen? Jesus said to his disciples, in this generation, when you begin to see all these things come to pass, then look up, your redemption draws nigh. All right, what is... The most important factor in prophecy, it is Israel. In 1948, the fig tree budded. When you see the fig tree bud, there's the start. In that generation, 1948, the fig tree budded. Israel flew its flag over Jerusalem for the first time since 70 AD. When you see the fig tree budding in that generation, all of it will come to pass. How long is a generation? Forty years. Simple arithmetic says by 1988, that generation will have reached that point. Now, I'm not a date setter, but I am interested in what the Bible teaches. And the Bible says in that generation, it's all going to happen. 
Where do we stand today, my friend? We stand with one foot in this world and one foot in the other. That's where we stand. And the burden of my heart to all of you here and all of, watch, all of you watching and all listening by tape or whatever is, are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Are you inside the ark? Are you ready? Have you walked through that door? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? I mean really trusting him. Or do you today need to get on your knees and say, Jesus, you've been a historical figure to me. You've been a nice name to me but I want you to be the Lord of my life, and I want to be safe in the arms of Jesus. Do you wonder why I preach like I do? Do you wonder why it is not difficult for me to work extra long hours that I might preach here or there or wherever God says I want you to go there and share my love and share the faith because I believe in my lifetime, this blessed Redeemer is going to come. The enics of this world are going to be translated. And I want to be found faithful on that day. I want others with me on that day. I want you with me on that day. Way back in the early chapters of Genesis, God has seen fit to show us his eternal plan right up to the very end. Through the flood, the ark, in prophecy. On the island of Martinique, the people were so wicked that they drove the missionaries from the island. They got so full of the devil that they crucified a hog in derision of the Lord Jesus Christ. There lay near the foot of Mount Pali on the Isle of Martinique, a city of some 35,000 people. When God got ready to pronounce his judgments upon those people in that city, the rumbling of the mountain was heard, much like the rumbling of Mount St. Helens of recent months. The experts went out, climbed the mountain to check the danger, and they came back and said, all is safe. But the rumbling began again, and again the experts said, all is safe. The reptiles, the lizards, and the birds, however, had more sense than the people, for they left the mountain. And one day on the island of Martinique, God uncamped Mount Pali and it vomited out its contents. And St. Pierre was buried beneath its ashes, 35,000 people who would not pay attention to the rumblings of the mountain lay under the ash. God is trying to wake us up again, friend. There are rumblings everywhere. There are rumblings in the Soviet Union. There are rumblings in Washington. There are rumblings in El Salvador. There are rumblings in China. There are rumblings in Sacramento. There are rumblings everywhere. How much will it take to awaken you to the fact that the flood is coming, but there is an ark to get into to carry you over the flood tides of humanity. Don't be left on the outside looking in. Today is a day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. This is God's hour of deliverance. Enter in. And saints, look up. Hallelujah. Look up.